This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good morning and welcome to episode number 55 of Go To Grandma, which I'm calling Age Appropriate. I'm Kathy Buckworth, and we continue to explore the world of today's grandparents. It's sometimes a strange society we live in where getting older can be seen as having less value than being younger. Normally, when we talk about ageism, it's related to work. But today, we're going to look at it through a grandparent lens. Why should retired grandparents care about ageism? In what ways can being a grandparent impact the view your grandchildren have about older people? Dr. Carrie Byrne, professor and founder of the Long Distance Grandparent website, tells us why it matters and what grandparents can do to help end ageism. As someone working in media who has routinely faced ageism, I can't wait to have this discussion and to see how we can help to prove our value, no matter what our age. No matter what your age, you need to live your life with passion. That's what my guest, author and humorist Mona Andre would say to you. Mona recently found her passion for hip-hop, which she now competes in, and she's going to inspire you to find your passion on the dance floor or wherever your passion takes you. Are you getting ready to head south to look at U.S. properties? Our Take 5 with RBC series continues with some new information you'll want to hear about before you look at whether to buy and where to buy. Pour that coffee and steep that tea. It's time for some more fun and facts on GoToGrandma. I'm Kathy Buckworth. Carrie Byrne is up first. Carrie Byrne, PhD, is a researcher, collaborator, and entrepreneur in aging, care, and connection. She's the founder of The Long Distance Grandparent, a mission-driven business helping grandparents strengthen relationships with their grandchildren, no matter what the distance between. With 25 years' experience spanning business, academia, and the not-for-profit sector, Carrie believes that strengthening intergenerational connections within families is critical to creating a more caring, connected, and less ageist society. Good morning, Carrie. Thanks for coming back on this show. I love your website, The Long Distance Grandparent. But today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. We're going to talk about ageism and why should grandparents care about it? Well, I want to start by just talking about what ageism is, because it's really the last sort of, it's been referred to as the kind of last acceptable form of discrimination. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that we kind of see and kind of think, oh, that that might be ageism, but oftentimes people aren't clear on what it is, and it really is sort of having negative thoughts, feelings, or actions towards other people based solely on their age. And it's also about having these negative thoughts, feelings, or actions towards yourself uh, based on age, and that's called self-directed ageism. And both kinds of ageism have really significant impacts uh, for grandparents right now. Uh, and in the future for grandchildren. And so in thinking about why should grandparents care about it, it's probably, first of all, very likely to be impacting their lives right now, in particular in the workplace and in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so it's a type of discrimination that, if not eradicated, will also, it's guaranteed to negatively influence their grandchildren's lives one day. And for many of your grandchildren, it probably already has because, of course, ageism cuts both ways. So we often think about it as something just specific to older people. But people experience ageism because they're younger as well. And when you look at some of the numbers about how many people are actually ageist, they're pretty shocking. Uh, there was a global report on ageism 
uh, put out by the World Health Organization. And one in two people hold ageist views. This is globally speaking, half the people in the world are ageist or have ageist views. Wow, that's shocking because I tend to think sometimes it's more of a North American thing, but clearly not. No, no, this, like, the research around it is pretty global. And in particular, because I said the World Health Organization report really gave us a global picture of it. And it's something that is affecting people all over the world. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm really interested in what you're saying about self-directed ageism, because you, you do think about that yourself sometimes. We wake up thinking, I, you know, maybe I wish I was younger. I wish I had, you know, could turn back the clock, those types of expressions. You know, and then when we look at our grandkids, I agree that we're looking at them maybe in terms of they're too young to do this, you know, or even our own kids. It's, it's a complicated issue, right? It really is. And I think that something like self-directed ageism is one of the I mean, we know from the research that it can actually knock seven and a half years off your life. Wow. <laughs> so if there's any motivation to not be ageist towards yourself, the research is really clear um, that if you have negative views about aging, that that decreases your lifespan by seven and a half years. So it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's a very significant issue for, broadly speaking, for our communities, for society. But when we start to look at this grandparent-grandchild relationship and what can be done, grandparents have a huge role to play. So that raises a question then, in what ways can being a grandparent impact the view your grandchildren have about older people? Well, if you consider that grandparents are oftentimes the first experience that a child has with someone from an older generation beyond their parents. So not only the first time that they have this relationship with an older person, but it's the most frequent contact they have with somebody. And there's some really neat research uh, that's come out of Belgium uh, where they ask children about their views on aging. And so we know that children who have positive, high-quality relationships with their grandparents are less likely to hold ageist views. Hmm. And they have demonstrated this in children who are preschool age. This holds true through adolescence. And so it really is important to have this strong relationship uh, with your grandchildren because it's been identified as something called a protective determinant against ageism. So it's not, you know, it's not insignificant, the, the, the relationship with your grandchild in terms of ageism. That is so interesting. So that's from the grandchildren's perspective. What can grandparents do to help end ageism? Well, I always think about grandparents as being this kind of hidden super workforce against ageism. I mean, in Canada alone, there are seven and a half million grandparents. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And also that people become grandparents usually for women when they're 51, for men when they're about 54. I think that ageism kind of plays into us thinking about grandparents as always being, you know, in 70s and 80s, and that's just not the case. So they have on average about four grandchildren and a 20-year long relationship. So that's a lot of grandparent-fueled anti-ageist power and influence to mobilize. And so I have a lot of hope about what grandparents can actually do. And the good news story here is that one of the most effective and gratifying ways for grandparents to end ageism is to be intentional about building strong and positive relationships with your grandchildren. And so this is something that most grandparents, as you well know, (laughs) want to do anyways. I think that in addition to the actual relationship with your grandchildren, the grandparents are also at exactly the right moment to work on becoming actively anti-ageist towards yourself. So just be really mindful about how you talk about aging in front of your grandchildren. We've all heard these kind of 
and, and probably said like, oh, I'm just having a senior moment, right. which seems, right, like seems yeah. innocent enough at the time, but children are listening and internalizing those messages. And so if we talk about and are really self-deprecating, as uh, many of us are about uh, getting older, try and change that. Right, try and change how you talk about aging uh, in front of your uh, grandchildren, and you know, stop with the kind of ageist tropes first of all. But yes, yeah, so that that's really the two things: is really having that strong relationship with them and remembering that your grandchildren are the workforce of the future. So mm-hmm. they're going to be the doctors, the nurses, the human resource executives who are going to be making decisions that influence the lives of older adults. And so we want them to be actively anti-ageist. So many great points. I love this discussion, Carrie. And, you know, some of our listeners who, you know, want to start this intentional, you know, grandparenting relationships if they don't live close to their grandkids, of course, you have great tips on your website, the long distance grandparent to help them do that. Even if they're not, you know, face to face and person to person, um, they can still try to develop that relationship. And on your point on the age of grandparents, I was 56 when I became a grandparent for the first time. And I had so many friends say, you're so young to be a grandparent. I'm like, I'm really not. <laughs> like, this is the age that we are, and it, like that, that's fine. But yeah, it's interesting hearing your stats that it's really 51 for women. That is younger than I would have thought, actually. Listen, you know what, Kathy? I, my own grandmother, I called her Pat because back in the day, she said I, she said I was, you know, I'm too young to be called grandma. So call me <laughs> <Love> Pat. <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, I've learned years later that I should have just called her grandma. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Well, thanks again for this, Carrie. And again, we can go to the longdistancegrandparent.com for some great tips on how to be a long distance grandparent. But I love all of these facts. Thank you so much for sharing them with us today. Thanks for having me, Kathy. Take care. Mona Andre is the author of Superwoman, a funny and reflective look at single motherhood. She's also an award-winning humor blogger and columnist. And now at the age of 57 and a half, she's part of a competitive hip-hop team. Good morning, Mona. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's a pleasure to have you back. Today's topic is living with passion regardless of your age. This is a bit of a mantra of yours, isn't it? Oh my gosh, yes it is, absolutely. And thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome. And I love that you put in your bio 57 and a half. I think the half's important. I'm 59 and a half. So there you go. <laughs> we can share that. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about something you love and you love to show other people, hip hop dance. Something that I don't know a lot of our listeners are into, but I am dying to hear about it. When and how did you get into hip hop? Um, so a few years ago, I think four years ago, I decided to take a summer class. I've always loved dance. And I thought, I'm going to take hip hop and um, at the end of the session, I was asked to join the team, and I've just been with them ever since. I love it so much. And I understand now you're competing. So tell me about that. What type of competition? What does all of this involve? So we competed in three uh, competitions this season, and in our category, we came in first for all three, which was pretty incredible and so much fun. Actually, our whole choreo was uh, about you know, a girl, well, a bunch of girls at a prom, I shouldn't say, yeah, a bunch of girls at a prom, because we do have one man on our team, and um, so we're dancing, and then all of a sudden, these zombies come on stage, and we do a complete, it's not just the choreo, we do a complete makeup and and uh, wardrobe change right on stage. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so if we want to see that, we can probably find that on some of your socials, which we'll talk about in a bit. And I love that you just sort of took this idea and embraced it when most, like, I'm worried about breaking a hip, not really doing <laughs> hip hop. So, so and maybe that's my fear. Like, what do you think is the one thing that stops people from doing the things that they love? I think 
while the pandemic hasn't helped, I think it's made, made people a little afraid of other humans, but also I think pressure. Like we, we give ourselves pressure to be good or great or, you know, to get out of our comfort zone isn't always comfortable, but we need to remember that sometimes doing things just to have fun, you don't have to compete, just to have fun is what it's all about, right? Exactly. And as you say, you know, we don't always have to be competing, but the fact that you found this competitive edge, do you think that really spurs you to want to do more? The competitive side mm-hmm. of it? Yeah. To be honest. So when we were leading up to the competition states, I was having nightmares because <laughs> I had never competed before. But then after the first one, once you get on stage and you're on there and you're just doing what you love and you're, you know, your body just takes over. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to do more. I'm for sure. It's that adrenaline, isn't it? That once you've, you know, you've succeeded in something that you didn't really, maybe you didn't know it was in you to begin with, right? It's such a feeling of purpose and accomplishment, which I find sort of as we get a bit older can be harder to find. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That is so true. What would you suggest if people are getting into hip hop? What special skills do you need, Mona, to be a hip hop expert like yourself? <laughs> love music. Mm-hmm. Love music. That's about it. And don't get too much in your head. Right. It's, not it's not anything new is not easy right no it isn't but, and uh, just follow your heart and did you have like you said you were always interested in dance did you have dance in your background like more as a as a kid or as a young adult were you taking dance classes then no never actually this was my first uh dance class that i took and apart from dancing at home with my kids that's uh that's it That's it. And so you are based out of Montreal, Mona. Can you tell us where you dance out of or give suggestions about where people could find dance classes? Sure. Yep. I'm in in the West Island of Montreal, and the school that I go to is called Break City. I think they they have classes in NDG as well. But what I love about this school is that everybody, it's a family. Mm -hmm. This is my dance fam. And you mentioned that when you came in first in your category, are those categories based on age, out of curiosity? Some of them, yes. So our category is 35 and up. Oh, okay. Okay. So and what? who is the, if I can ask this delicate question, maybe who's the oldest person of your dance troupe? I think she is 62. Mm-hmm. And she is also a break dancer. Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding? <laughs> I know. I know. So is she not an inspiration? Her name is Barb. She She's the one, actually, who pretty much did all our costumes. And she is an inspiration in herself. 62-year-old breakdancer. I don't know if that's in my future. <laughs> it's, this is a great topic to have on today because our first interview was with um, Dr. Carrie Byrne who talked about ageism and how age, how self-directed ageism can really stop us from doing the things that we want and we have this negative voice inside our head. It sounds like maybe you've conquered that negative voice. Would you say so? Yes, absolutely. I think that I'm not a specialist. I'm not an expert in any way, but I, I do think that ageism can be... Uh, classified under a limiting limiting belief. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so if we tell ourselves we can't do it, chances are uh, we're not going to do it. Exactly. And we don't give ourselves a chance. As soon as that little voice says, you know, oh, you can't do this or you're too old for this, that stops us. So what advice do you have for people who have that negative voice in their head? How would you tell them to change the conversation? Don't listen to it. Just don't listen to it. And and also there's like the one, two, three rule. As soon as you feel like you can't do something, just say one, two, three, get up and do it. Oh, I like that. I like that. That would work for a lot of people, I think. And I really enjoy following along with your Instagram account. You have lots of inspiration for people starting new things, doing new things, including 
hip-hop dancing, of course. And we can find you on Instagram at Mona underscore Andre, and that's A-N-D-R-E-I. You're also on Twitter under Moxie Dude. I love that name. <laughs> yeah, that's my blog. And Facebook as well, and that's your blog. Thanks so much for coming back on. I hope that today's session will inspire some people to do the one, two, three, just do it. Thank you for having me, and thank you for doing what you do. Thank you so much, Mona. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Alain Forget has been working for Royal Bank Financial Group for over 42 years with sales leadership roles in Canada, the Caribbean, and the U.S. He is passionate about helping Canadians purchase U.S. homes and works closely with consumers, real estate professionals, and partners to assist Canadian buyers in the U.S. Alain is a licensed real estate agent in Florida and has his NARCIPS designation as a certified international property specialist. Good morning and welcome back, Elaine. Or should I call you Grandpapa? I think that's what your grandkids call you. <laughs> We're talking today about getting ready to head south or maybe not to buy a U.S. vacation property. So I think you have some interesting statistics to share with our audience on the U.S. property market for Canadian buyers. Who is buying and where are they buying? Thanks for having me back, Kathy. Yes, I do have some research updates uh, from the most recent study released by the National Association of Realtors. Uh, the, the study has been done annually since 2009 and surveys its members to measure the size of the U.S. residential real estate transaction with international clients. It also gathers information uh, on the origin, destination, and buying preferences of international buyers. And Canada is consistently near the top of the list. Uh, for in, in fact, from April 2021 to March 2022, Canadians invested 5.5 billion, up from 4.2 billion, which is a 31% year-over-year increase. Canada was number two after China in dollar volume of purchase. However, Canada was number one in the number of purchase transactions with 11,300 uh, 11, compared with 8,800, which is a 28% year-over-year. With a purchased uh, price average of 485000 So that's pretty uh, steady, consistent. And much change, uh, of course, from prior years. Uh, not really anything different. Top three uh, destination for Canadian buyers was Florida, Arizona, California, which represented 80% of all purchases. And Florida is the single biggest, of course, at 45% or almost $2.5 billion. And when would you were asked about the property use, 58% said these will be vacation properties and or vacation home, uh, rental homes. It's like Canadians want to go somewhere warm, don't you think, Ellie? <laughs> I think so. I think so. And these statistics are so interesting. It's amazing to see the growth year over year, even though we were still in the midst of the pandemic and had some serious travel restrictions in place. Can you provide some insight on that? I think I can provide some answer to that, Kathy. First off, some people did continue to travel south, albeit cautiously. And I also know that some lenders like RBC Bank can support remote closing. So buyers can close without even having to cross the border. So depending on how keen one is to buy, there are ways and means to make it happen, even long distance with, as you know, virtual, of course, um, open house or virtual search and buying process. And one of the main reasons I think Canadians are keen to buy and have continued to buy in Florida and elsewhere in the U.S. is affordability. 
And while that has changed a little with the increased demand and rising interest rates and prices, quick comparison between Canada, Canadian and U.S. costs is an indication. For example, the most expensive cities in Canada, as you know, Vancouver, Toronto, runs at about $1,000 per square foot. Whereas the most expensive Florida areas like Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach is at around $317 per square foot. And similarly, if we look at Arizona, Phoenix, Mesa, Scottsdale is around 284 per square foot. So U.S. real estate offers Canadians pretty good value and upside equity potential. And of course, beside the Southern weather and outdoor lifestyle all year around. Wow, a lot to consider for anyone considering their retirement or vacation home. But I also know that you have some suggestions on how RBC Bank can assist. I do. Well, for almost 20 years, the RBC Bank, besides being a cross-border bank, has specialized in working with Canadians and has helped clients make the journey from dream to doorstep as convenient as possible. As with And with the RBC Bank Home Plus Advantage program, Canadians have access to qualified financial, real estate, legal, and tax professionals who are trained and experienced in working with Canadian clients. So we also offer mortgage uh, financing to Canadians and can qualify you based on your Canadian credit history uh, and income. And, of course, with our team of mortgage professionals, the mortgage terms are even designed to be, you know, easy to understand for Canadians. Again, all this to make their cross-border dream from dream to doorstep journey as seamless as possible. Back to you, Kat. Everything that you've shared, we can find at rbcbank.com slash HPA. Thanks again, Ali, and I'm sure we'll be checking in with you again in the near future. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Colonel Harlan Sanders was 61 when he started the KFC franchise. J.R.R. Tolkien was 62 when the Lord of the Ring books came out. Jack LaLanne, at age 70, was handcuffed, shackled, and towed 70 rowboats. Nelson Mandela was 76 when he became president. Age is a number. It's the number of years you've been on the earth. But it's not an indicator of ability, willingness, or attitude when it comes to both new things and doing old things even better. Thanks to Dr. Carrie Byrne for her thoughts on why fighting ageism matters to grandparents. And thanks to Mona Andre for proving positivity can happen at any age. Next week, I have a special episode for you. I'm taking a week off, but sharing an encore episode combining some of our most popular interviews and subjects. Peter Mansbridge and his new book on his life so far, the people he's met and the experiences he's had, and of course, his granddad journey. Then Tim Caulfield and why science matters and how to have conversations with people who don't believe in science. Are they even worth having? And rounding it up with a take five with RBC conversation around estate planning for women and why it can be different than for men. Thanks again for listening and for helping us to crack the top 100 Canadian parenting podcasts more than once, including a peak status at number 13. Let's get to the top 10 this season, shall we? I'm your host, Kathy Buckworth, and you've been listening to Go To Grandma. Enjoy your grand journey. Share your thoughts on this show with us. You can find Kathy on Twitter at Kathy Buckworth or email her Kathy at KathyBuckworth.com. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.